0: Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor David Hayton. Professor Hayton is Emeritus Professor of History at Queen's University, Belfast. He has worked in the History of Parliament Trust Editing the volumes dealing with the House of Commons between 1690 and 1715. He is a member of the Irish Academy. And today we are speaking about his new book, Conservative Revolutionary, The Lives of Lewis Nimeri, published by Manchester University Press. Welcome, Professor Hayton.
1: It's nice to be here.
0: Professor, what is the genesis of this book
1: well, uh, I worked, as you say, for the History of Parliament Trust, uh, which was um, uh, the, the institution, I suppose, most closely associated with Sir Lewis namia And in his um, last 10 years, it occupied uh, all his time. And by the time I worked there, I was far too young to know Namier. He died in 1960. But he was; his presence was still there, and people talked about him. There were plenty of people who knew him, um, and regarded him as the most impressive person they'd ever encountered intellectually. So I was, in a, in a way, indoctrinated into thinking how important he was. And I obviously had read his work. In any case, but it was when I was trying to write the introductory survey to our volumes in the early 18th century that I got very interested in. Uh, the history of the history, and I started looking into the archive. And while I was there, I found 20 boxes of Namia papers, which had never, to my knowledge, been used by anybody um, who was interested in Namia as such. His widow, who wrote a biography of him, uh, which was published 10 years after he died, was not interested in the material he left in his office, which is what that, those 20 boxes were. She was not interested really in his in his history writing it was about him as a person uh, and his public career that she was concerned so these were entirely new and then I began to find more and more material and I always feel that you know you've got a good subject when everything you look at um, turns up something of, of value so that's really I kind of fell into doing it and indeed I had um, met uh, before they died a number of people who worked very closely with Namia and had I been thinking of writing biography I'd have talked to them uh then and there but I didn't and by the time I I was interested it was too late so I should have really been planning this from a long way but it, it happened by kind of serendipity really
0: can you tell us a little bit about uh sir lewis's um, family background in pre-1914 um... Habsburg, Galicia, and I suppose before that in uh, Warsaw.
1: Yes, he his family he was Jewish on both sides. His father's family were fairly well-to-do liberal Jews in Russian Poland. I mean they were very well-to-do I think but that can't be proved.
0: Um, his
1: On his mother's side um, his maternal grandfather uh, was a a landowner and industrialist in Galicia, which um, you couldn't be in Russian Poland, you could be in Habsburg, Poland. And after the marriage, uh, his parents moved down from um, Warsaw down to um, a, a series of of small towns south of what was then Lemberg, which is now Lviv, um, in East Galicia, moving down towards almost the Romanian border. Um, his father, um, having trained as a lawyer, wasn't very much good at that and was also rather idle and I think a bit of a gambler um, and ended up really working for his father-in-law, managing estates and managing his uh, his uh, father-in-law's distilleries and eventually bought an estate uh, called i uh, in um, what is now uh, Ukraine. Or his name would have said Ukraine. That's how he always pronounced it, apparently. Um, but which was then in, in the Habsburg Empire. And Namia described himself as the son of a gentleman when he went to Oxford. Uh, but it was only a, a, a very recent uh, acquisition, the, the Gentry Estate. And then, of course, these were um, fairly cosmopolitan. His mother had been to. Um, university in Germany for a while, Uh, family spoke French and Polish at home, they were strong Polish nationalists and his father was an old-style liberal, um, which um, Ludwig, as he was then, Ludwig Bernstein, uh, could not um, abide. He became a a Slavophile, uh, which is very unusual for uh, uh, an East European Jew, um, uh, even though Russia ought to have been associated with, with persecution of Jews. Uh, in, in fact, um, he became um, a, a pan-Slavist under the influence of, of one of his um, uh, tutors. So his family background was fairly prosperous, he was privately educated, and then he went to university first in Lemberg, and then in um, Lausanne briefly, and then in England.
0: How and why did he end up as an undergraduate at Oxford?
1: Um, well, he, when he first came to England, um, he came to the London School of Economics. And it was really because at that time, he was quite left-wing in his views. He'd been a, a socialist as a young man, um, quite a, an advanced socialist. So he all, always denied that he was a Marxist. Um, you, you could be guaranteed to, to infuriate him in by suggesting he was. Um, but he'd always been very left-wing from about the age of 12 or 13 onwards. Uh, and he came uh, at Lausanne under the influence of um, uh, Pareto, the, the uh, Italian sociologist and economist. And I think through various hints from people he knew uh, at Lemberg and in Lausanne, he thought BLSE was the best. Place to be, and when he joined, when he went to the LSE, he became a Fabian and immersed himself in, into into that world. But he didn't like it very much. Um, he seems not to have liked the 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 physical um, appearance and the environment of London very much, and he was always unhappy. And his um, one of his tutors. Uh, a man called Edvard Westermark, a very famous anthropologist, wrote to Oxford, uh, wrote to Balliol College and said you really should take this man because he's he's the most brilliant student we've ever had. Um, And Balliol, who were um, a very broad-minded college in Edwardian, Oxford, they had a number of Jewish undergraduates, although they um, tended to regard um, uh, Jewish undergraduates with a certain amount of of um, not quite disdain, but, but uh, a certain patronizing uh, quality. But they were also, um, uh, at that time, a very um, left-wing college imbued with the, with the ethos of Christian socialism. And the leading light in the college, who he was not yet master, Arthur Smith, uh, took a shine to Naomi and they admitted him. And when he got there, of course, it was as though he'd found his home in life.
0: What did uh, Sir Lewis make of Oxford, and what did Oxford make of Sir Lewis?
1: Well, um, he loved it. And for the rest of his life, he was always trying to get back, and it was, it was a cause of great pain to him um, that actually Oxford didn't want him sufficiently to, to, to have him back. Um, he was intoxicated by the intellectual atmosphere of, of Oxford, particularly of Balliol College, which was, you know, out by some distance the the, the the most brilliant intellectual college in the university. Um, he also found that England, unlike uh, as he saw it, um, Habsburg, uh, Austria and its dominions, and unlike Russia, was a society which was open to the talents, um, ordinary businessmen could make their way into the English upper classes. So it's been said that he idealized the English aristocracy, and I think that's it's partly true, but he idealized it because he thought that these were the people uh, who were uh, rulers of empire, destined to be rulers of empire, and generally um, were disinterested, public spirited. This is how he saw them. It's not necessarily, of course, how they were, uh, and they belonged to a Uh, an upper class which was rooted in English history, which again was unlike the Polish upper class in in Galicia, uh, which was more like a colonial class, and it was also a kind of aristocracy which people like his grandfather could have and did move into, although it took them a bit of time to do it. So he he really loved Oxford, and he particularly uh, moved in um, circles um, which were concerned with people who were concerned with imperial questions. He began at that point to get very very interested in um, the what he called the Anglo-Saxon empires, um, which he defined as as Britain and the USA. He had uh, friends from Canada, Australia, and one particular friend from America, Whitney Shepardson, um, who was already very interested in uh, the Uh, American Revolution, why it had happened, and so on. And he also became um, involved with groups uh, like the the Round Table, the the, um, imperial, uh, progressive imperial Federalists uh, around Lionel Curtis. But what Oxford made of him uh, is is a a different matter. He was regarded as a a strange person. Um, Within Balliol, there were a number of very successful Jewish undergraduates who became uh, president of the Union and what have you. Um, they tended to be from English public school backgrounds. Naomi was very different. Uh, he came from Eastern Europe. He had a very pronounced guttural accent. Um, he managed to survive simply, I think, because of his strangeness. And he was not. There's a very interesting uh, comparison with with a uh, a fellow undergraduate at New College, slightly older than me, Harry Sacker, who became a journalist on the Manchester Guardian and a very strong Zionist like Namia. And Sacker did not enjoy his time at Oxford, as far as I could tell from his autobiography. And he felt he was always discriminated, discriminated against because his father was a tailor in the east end of London. He wasn't a public schoolboy. Well, Namier could at least claim to be of gentry stock, which he did. Um, He was regarded as an eccentric, but never really taken to Oxford's bosom very much. Even even the people who were the the most um, supportive of him in many respects, Um, if you read their letters, they had this... the slight um, distance from him. Um, Smith, who was his great supporter, became master of Balliol, um in the 1920s, um, actually said in one, one of his letters, you know, I must tell you that straight away that he is, as his name suggests, a Jew, with all that that implies. Well, of course, I never was quite sure what all uh, that implied, but presumably his readers would have been. So, um, and, Oxford thought he was a character, they knew he was a brilliant man, but they never really, uh, his his tutors and his, his colleagues never really took him to their hearts.
0: Uh, at this early time at Oxford, did the origins of this uh, legend, or perhaps it's not a legend, I, I presume it is though, that uh, sir lewis was uh, i think the expression from uh the trevor roper correspondence is quote history's greatest bore yes. unquote.
1: well I, I think i think there's a great deal of truth in it even his wife called him a monomaniac and he always assumed that the workings of his own mind and what was interesting to him would be a profound interest to everybody else so there are plenty of stories when he was an him. Um, uh, holding forth on the subject of Eastern Europe um, and the Jewish question to his fellow undergraduates, who of course knew nothing of either, most of them, even the most uh, the most gifted, uh, found um, uh, nameless discussions of 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 um, um, the various territories of the Habsburg Empire completely mystifying because they had no idea where they were. So there is that sense uh, straight away that he he didn't know. One of his tutors said he never knows when to leave my rooms. Um, you know, he, there's a, there's a. I suppose nowadays we would, would possibly say that he was, he was on the spectrum, um, not quite the, the social antennae weren't quite that developed. Uh, but he did, of course, make a number of friends, uh, both as an undergraduate and subsequently as a tutor, and people who, who remained his friends for life.
0: Uh, How important uh, for Sir Lewis was the, um, I suppose it's 18 months to two years time that he spent in America uh, before in the early portion of the Great War? I think they were profoundly
1: important. Um, When he came to America, he'd already begun work on what was to be a lifetime project on trying to understand how the American Revolution had happened. And and he was at that time looking largely at um, printed material. At pamphlets and so on. Uh, when he came to um, America, now he was working, and he makes great claim on his books with the fact slightly, slightly um, uh, holier than thou, sanctimonious way of saying it, um, because he was in America where libraries are open at the weekends and in the evenings, he could carry on with his research. Um, assuming, of course, that the reader would think, well, people back in Oxford would, would stop work at 6 o'clock. Um, but he he um, used a lot of material in uh, American archives, in Harvard, uh, in New York, in the New York Public Library and at Yale. Um, he used to visit various people at Yale. And um, uh, C. N. Andrews, uh, who was his, um, I suppose, the person who set him on the road. Um, advised him uh, not to study the American side, but to study the English side, where not enough work had been done. And it's also, I think, undeniable that he was influenced by Charles Beard, um, although he never said so himself, and his widow never said so. Beard's great book uh, uh, on um, the American Revolution, which used some of the techniques that Namia had used, uh, was a kind of revisionist book in his time, appeared while he was um, while he was working in New York, and um, he could easily have gone to Seabird, although there's no evidence that he did. But he was very fond of saying, he, during the 1920s, that while British historians were hopeless, uh, uh, particularly those dealing with the 18th century, um, there were some very fine historians in America, and indeed the only decent work being done uh, on uh, um, 18th century British history was being done in America. So I think he was profoundly influenced in that time and it, it, I think Beard in particular, because Beard uses some of the same techniques, although in a more limited way uh, that, that, than Amir does. Um, Beard, when he's looking at the membership of the Continental Congresses, and he's looking at the individuals. And, and atomizing the Congress and then trying to, to build up a picture from the the, the individual biographies. So um, that's exactly, of course, what Namier did later on. So I think his time in America was profoundly important. He nearly stayed in America because he was going, before the First World War broke out, he was going to study law uh, in St. Louis. And then, um, as I said in the book, uh, then a lot of uh, Midwestern attorneys should be grateful for the fact that he didn't.
0: Yes, and no doubt judges as well, <laughs> since they have been the recipients of uh, his uh, legal discourse yes, in I court. So. Uh, how did uh, Sir Lewis end up at uh, Wellington House during the Great War uh, doing war work, and what was exactly he was doing well,
1: there? Well, um, he, he joined up, in, he came back to, to fight for king and adopted country, he was naturalized by that time, and, and uh, saw himself as British. Um, and he didn't actually fire a gun in anger. He did a lot of training, and then um, some of his friends, um, he thought his friends in Oxford, but not in Oxford, in fact, some of his friends who were aware of his of his um, uh, remarkable knowledge of Eastern European uh, politics and societies, and his command of languages, felt that he would be useful. Uh, in the Department of Information in Wellington House, uh, essentially preparing material uh, at that stage um, for um, newspaper reports that were being issued, particularly in America. I mean, his connection with with having worked in America, uh, that was extremely important because they felt that he could assist in, in promoting the British cause uh, to, the, to the American um, uh, population. Uh, but very soon, he moved from... Um, the Department of Information, or misinformation, as it was sometimes jocularly called, uh, to um, uh, the Intelligence Bureau, which was not um, intended, really, to provide um, propaganda material, but to provide advice to government, and that was eventually moved lock, stock, and barrel into the Foreign Office, as the, the what was called the Political Intelligence Department, and there, what he did was I mean he read newspapers he read dispatches he read secret material and he provided what we would now think of as background papers on particular issues um, to 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 government um, he provided analyses of uh, particular incidents and episodes he also provided uh, as he which he probably shouldn't have done in fact he was told not to he provided opinions and um, advice on what government should do in relation to principally the Austro-Hungarian Empire um, and as it developed during the war, policy towards Poland. They were his two principal areas of interest.
0: Did his uh, war work have any influence on his future career as a historian?
1: Um, well, I think it did in, in in some respects. I mean, it was it was a very good training for the historian to have to work through a range of documentary material very quickly uh, and to produce these tightly written um, uh, uh, position papers. Um, But also I think um, it helped him in in several ways. He always had a great interest in European history and it sharpened his obsession with uh, 19th century Europe and the the world that had come to an end really in in brought to an end in the fourteen eighteen war and he wrote as well as his work on English history he wrote many articles and um essays and book reviews on European history and projected uh, any number of books on european history and a lot of that material um came from um lot well, of the interest in that material came from working. Uh, in the Foreign Office and seeing all this material close at hand um, I think he also began to develop certain um, traits that you can spot in his later work um, one of the, the, the necessities in providing these position papers was to provide what is now uh, popularly known as evidence-based uh, uh, arguments so he had always to uh, Essentially, count um, you know how many um, poles, how many Jews, how many Ukrainians were in a particular part of Galicia. Should this go to Poland? Should this go to to, to the Ukraine? Should it go to Russia? Um, he also had to analyse uh, a, a raft of really sometimes very misleading, deliberately misleading pieces of evidence, newspaper reports, um, press. Uh, uh, material coming out of out of either the Central Powers or the right wing nationalists in Poland, of whom he was always very suspicious. So I think some of the practices that he that later brought to his 18th century history began um, when he was when he was working in, the, in what was known as the PID, the Political Intelligence Department.
0: Why did uh, Sir Lewis fail to obtain a permanent post at Oxford after he left the Foreign Office in 1920?
1: Yes, that's a very tricky one. Um, he he was determined to leave, and um, eventually in 1920 he did. Partly, he left a little bit early, as we discussed at the way not so much British policy was going, but allied policy was going. He was committed to the notion that Poland should, an independent uh, Polish state, such as had been created uh, at the end of the First World War, uh, should not um, acquire land to which it was not um, entitled by demography, really. So Polish uh, aims in Lithuania, uh, in Belarus, and especially in East Galicia, uh, were things that he he worked very hard to try and, uh, and defeat. But a combination of French and American, and to some extent British policy, meant that his his ideas came to nothing. So he left slightly early. And all that could be found from Oxford was what we would now think of as a tutorial assistantship. He 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 taught young men uh, to, in tutorials. At um a, a, a piecework rate, you know so much an hour, he gave lectures to try and show how great he was, um, and he wasn't paid for the first year of those, and second year he was only paid about three years later. He was it it seemed to me quite shabbily treated in Oxford, and it's hard to put one's finger on it. Um, it may be that he was just seen as too intense, um, too um difficult a person. Um, There may may well have been some um, uh, anti-Semitic element, because he hadn't been appointed, uh, he hadn't been elected as a Fellow of All Souls before the First World War, quite clearly because of of, uh, uh, anti-Semitism. He was also by this time quite an active Zionist, and I suspect that this made him appear, if if it's not an, an absurdity, more Jewish than he was. Um, he was not a practicing Jew. He never was. Um, uh, but his, his association, with, association with Zionism made people, I think, feel that he was, you know, an ultra-Jewish uh, uh, an ultra uh, individual. And there was still a certain amount of anti-Jewish, quite a lot of it, prejudice in Oxford. So he would never have admitted that himself. In fact, he, would have, he made all sorts of excuses um, why he was not Appointed, um, but I suspect that that was a very strong reason. That and a certain um, intensity and and um, difficult uh, difficult qualities, personal qualities, intensity of personality, and, and and rather combative personality, that made him not quite persona grata uh, in senior common rooms, which was extraordinary because so many of the people that he'd been undergraduates with. Uh, at Balio already had Oxford fellowships, um, including people that he had tutored more or less through their finals. It must have been extremely um, frustrating.
0: Why did uh, Sir Lewis become a Zionist?
1: Well, that I think is a very difficult question. Um, And it's it's when and why uh, is something I was never able in the book to to give a firm answer to. when he was talking in later years to his widow, whom he wished to write his biography and more or less dictated bits of it to, um, he said that he was slowly moving towards a designer's position, really from the time that he went to Lemberg University in 1908. Well, I just don't see that at all. I think that's an ex post facto rationalization. Um, where we see him beginning to take a very strong Zionist view is around 1918, 1919. And between, we'll say 1918 and 1920, I think he, he embraces um, uh, the Zionist project. And partly it is that he's very, he meets and it's very heavily influenced by Weizmann, Chaim Weizmann, who was, who was a, a kind of almost like a, a father figure to him, a surrogate father, because he didn't get on with his own father. Um, but also, because I think while he was in the p i d he was seeing all these papers come before him, detailing um on the one hand atrocities against pogroms and and murders of Jews in eastern Europe, uh, and also seeing the way these were excused and indeed gloried in by some elements of the of the right wing press in Eastern Europe, and also finding um an institutionalized anti-Semitism in some areas of the Foreign Office, which meant that he couldn't get these ideas across. So I think that's increasing frustration and the the as a, as a pull factor, I think, the influence of Weizmann and of Leonard Stein, who was a friend of his from Balliol, who was at that time political secretary of the Zionist movement, that drew him into Zionism around the 1920s. And then he starts in the 20s to attend Zionist congresses and and, uh, and so
0: on. Uh, how different in terms of content and form, uh, and, and I suppose the novelty aspect as well as future importance, was his first historical book, The Structure of Politics at the Ascension of George the III?
1: Well, it seemed to contemporaries to be very novel. This is a book that he'd been working on off and on, really, since about 1912, when he began to to write about um, the American Revolution and the sundering of the great of the British Empire, uh, which he felt was a very, very important um, milestone in, in in world history, and affected. Um, not just not just uh, American politics but or British politics, but european politics um, but he'd started to work on this really from the perspective of uh, uh, trying to understand um, the arguments, and gradually he began to think that um, what was important was understanding the flow of events. how had the American Revolution happened what had what had been the mainsprings of the decisions uh, made in in Britain uh, in the 1750s and 60s, which had um, precipitated uh, war. And he began to um, look at the, the background, the political, the parliamentary background, and in order to do so, because of this training in the Foreign Office where he had to provide you know, statistical Um, uh, evidence based arguments he began to want to answer he wanted to answer uh, questions about the nature of government the nature of um, uh, 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 parliamentary support for each side and he needed figures to do this it was no good saying that a majority of, of members of parliament were Whigs a majority were Tories a majority were this that and the other he needed to know what parties there were So he began to look at uh, individuals and to try and calculate, you know, how many um, what what might call Tories, what what, what might call government weeks, opposition weeks. He very quickly discovered uh, what some historians had already discovered, that parties in the 70s, the parliament in the 1760s was not uh, a a two-party system or a three-party system, but a multi-party system and the key uh, to Understanding uh, how elections uh, uh, were uh, called and their results and how ministries were made and unmade was to understand the maneuverings of factions attached to the leading politicians of the day. Now, he wasn't the first person to do this, but he was the first person to do it uh, in uh, um, authoritative depth. So he provided numbers uh, and uh, uh, and lists um, for. Uh, members a membership of particular factions. But he also felt um, and one of the things about Naomi is that he, he always wanted to, to find out as much as he could about everything. In fact, you could say he wanted to know everything about everything. So he started off. Uh, asking one question and then in order to answer that he had had to ask another question and in order to answer that he needed to ask a a further question. So he was always going deeper and deeper into the material and his first book uh, was um, as he would have said a prolegomena. It was a prologue to what was intended as a a multi-volume narrative of the period 1754, to 1776, which would have brought the story of uh, English politics, English policy making, right through to the American Revolution. Um, so he set out to answer various questions about Parliament, and he did so by uh, 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 using material drawn from a vast range of primary sources manuscript sources which had not been used before he went through most famously the Newcastle papers in the British Museum but he also dug out uh, and uh, made use of family collections which had never been seen and one of the things which made such an impact from the first and the second book and they follow very closely together and they're both really scene-setting books and um, they they, they Describe the British political system, and they then, in the second book, you hear the results of the election of 1761, the first major turning point in his period. But it is um, the depth, the archival richness, that he he was able to 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 show, his familiarity with the material, which was by far uh, in excess of anything anyone else had ever written. Now he also made arguments about. Uh, George III, um, debunking the notion that George III had come to the throne in 1760, determined to recover the prerogatives of the crown that his father uh, had allowed to wither, uh, and that he took a a ruthless attitude to try and and increase the power of the crown, um, advised by his his favorite Lord Bute, and making use of patronage. Uh, and pensions and places to buy a a majority for the crown in the House of Commons. Namely debunked this um, in a way that it hadn't been debunked before. And I suppose that is what um, is is essentially novel about the book, Um, the argument uh, about George III. But in fact, what was really extraordinary to contemporaries and what they picked up on was... The, the depth of knowledge, the fact that he was able to write about completely obscure people as though he knew them, and he was able to create a world uh, which people hadn't seen before. So instead of the, the rather old-fashioned um, constitutional history of the Whigs, you now had a picture of of the Parliament of the 1760s, as it must have appeared to contemporaries. And people would, the reviewers said, Mr. Namia knows more about um, the, the world of the 1760s than even the people who lived there.
0: Why was the second book, uh, England in the Age of the American Revolution, not as well received as Structure?
1: Yes, it, that's an interesting one. I, I, I think. Um, one of his close friends, the, the conservative politician Walter Eliot, um, argued that you know, when the first book had come out, it was such a different kind of book than anything that had appeared before, that Namir was a kind of unknown figure, and everybody um, bowed down for the unknown god, as, as Elliot put it. When the second book came out, he was a known quantity, and what they were getting was, in fact, Really, more of the same, and they were expecting i think that some readers were expecting now he 's cleared the he 's cleared the the the, the 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 undergrowth in the first book he 's now going to build, uh, and he didn 't actually build there was much more clearing of undergrowth and a very limited amount of explanation of why um, the Butte Newcastle ministry came into being uh, and even to a lesser extent, why it ceased to come into being, uh, ceased to cease to exist, so that a lot of readers felt, well, you know, this is the second the second book, as much the same as the first. He's not really he's not answered the big questions. They were expecting big questions to be answered, uh, and they weren't. Um, in due course, had he been able to to finish uh, the, his his projected work, um, one presumes that big questions would have been answered if he hadn't been sidetracked. But I think that's a, there's a slight sense of disappointment with the second book, which upset him a bit, I think. He was expecting to be lionized much as he had been with the first one.
0: Now, in the early 30s, he finally uh, obtains, uh, after so long a time period, An academic post at Manchester. What sort of teacher was he?
1: Um, Well, those who I, those who were taught by him, some of whom um, recorded their reminiscences, um, and others from a later generation, I was able to talk to some of his latter pupils, said that he was for for good students. um, He was a was a marvellous teacher, um, because um, he took them seriously. Um, he didn't talk down to them. Uh, he knew a tremendous amount, but he was willing to be corrected if they could find any Mistakes in his work. In fact, he he was thrilled if one of his students found something that he'd said that was wrong And he took endless amounts of time uh, And trouble with the brighter students now that has to be said the brighter students. He didn't really do much teaching in um, the, the general courses he he stuck with what were called the honours students, who were a minority. Most of the students were were reading for a past degree or a joint degree, uh, and they were pushed through a kind of sausage machine uh, of lectures and exams by the assistant lecturers. Namia liked to deal principally with honours students in their final year. He also um, uh, liked to teach and examine what he wanted to teach and examine. Uh, in a way that I think people nowadays, uh, academics nowadays, would think was very advanced. I mean, he had the, the most extraordinary uh, set of exam questions, uh, which uh, I don't think I could have got away with when I was teaching. One of them um, was, I think, what could, uh, what is, and should be in a newspaper. Now, asking a student that, I think nowadays, well, they'd be baffled, uh, but also it would be far too too broad. Um, he also. Um, couldn't stand the the normal examination uh, uh, system. He liked, you know, to set a particular type of of examination. You could do one question rather than three. You could write on what you liked. Um, The students could um, invigilate themselves and so on. Um, So I think he was, uh, nowadays he'd be seen as innovative. At the time, I think he was seen as terribly self-indulgent. But because he was so important, he could get away with it. And uh, he didn't do that much administration. So it was great with the better students, um, not so good with the ordinary students. And indeed, he himself said that what he really should be doing was training researchers. That's what he ought to to be doing. And he once um, uh, suggested that, uh, that he be given a job in America at Yale, I think, just training researchers. He would have loved that.
0: Now, in Manchester in the early 30s is where he first met with and um, entered into a very strong friendship with AJP Taylor, Alan Taylor. Can you describe a little bit their early relationship?
1: Yes, Taylor was already appointed at Manchester. He was um, uh, an assistant lecturer. Um, I think had already been in Manchester a year before Namir arrived. And he was brought in in... Uh, moment of desperation by the head of department who had nobody to teach 19th century Europe. And I suspect that that was Namia's great attraction as well, that he could teach 19th century Europe. So Namia took Taylor under his wing um, and he made sure that Taylor finished a PhD thesis, although he himself despised the notion of a a doctorate. He thought it was far too Germanic. Um, He made sure that Taylor published his, his thesis um, he made sure that Taylor got um, work book reviewing for um, the Manchester Guardian and for and for weeklies, and I think, although the evidence, uh, <laughs> a lot of our evidence comes from Taylor, but it, it looks as though Namier acted as a kind of of academic godfather to Taylor. Um, Taylor himself, uh, especially after Namier died, was very anxious. Uh, not to be described as a protege of Namia or a pupil of Namia, uh, which he said he never was. And in fact, um his autobiography um uh, argues that uh, in fact he, he, rather than uh Namia telling him what to do, he had to tell Namir what to do. Namia had no experience of, of, of lecturing or teaching in a provincial university. Um so Namia, uh, so Taylor had to tell him uh you know how to how to do this? How to do that? How to set papers? Exam papers? How to what, what, what to what to mark and so on? I find that a little bit self-serving. I suspect the truth is uh, as always somewhere in between. I think that Taylor probably did have to have to assist NAMIA in certain administrative matters, but on the whole, in terms of their uh, in terms of Taylor's intellectual development, it's very much. Um, uh, Namier who is the dominant figure, and a lot of the ideas that one sees subsequently in, in Taylor's writings, um, his tendency in some of his books to poo-poo public opinion, for example, uh, or, or his not quite as not quite as severe as Namir, but his Germanophobia, his dislike of German nationalism, I think, is taken very much from Namir. Taylor was always rather more radical of the two. his radical past was long gone by the 1930s. He described himself as a a Tory radical, but more a Tory than a radical. Um, Taylor was still very much the nonconformist, radical, liberal, uh, and politically they weren't quite on the same wavelength, but in almost every other respect they were
0: why was uh, Sir Lewis so early on able to identify the expansionist and hegemonic dangers of National Socialist Germany?
1: Uh, well, it, it 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 fitted very closely with his um, reading of German nationalism. Um, he had certain idefixes about about Europe. Um, the most important was that the the single most dangerous feature. Of the 19th century was the rise of German nationalism, and he always felt that German nationalism, unlike the nationalism of the Czechs, for example, um, or indeed of the Italians, um, German nationalism was always expansionist by nature. It was, um, it was almost as if he was, he was doing a, a, a psychoanalysis of the German character uh, and saw expansionist nationalism as its natural uh, uh, emanation. And his arguments about the First World War is that it's caused by the expansion of German and Austrian uh, um, national movements from Central Europe towards the East. That's what brought about the First World War. And in a way, simply he reads Hitler as um, a a more malign, but a a very similar um, phenomenon to Prussianism uh, in in the late 19th century or the Kaiser uh, before the First World War. Um, Hitler, he argued, was the perfect example or the perfect um, expression of the German national character, which is, of course, not a phrase really that one can um, uh, agree with, uh, um, but it was very much a belief that he had, and he always believed that Germans were… Um, it, <laughs> imaginatively limited I mean it's almost like a caricature um and that they were their cruelty would be systematic cruelty rather than um rather than the, the cruelty of the, the Tata or whoever else. It would be systematic scientific cruelty. And of course in some extent he was there he was proved right. So he always felt that Hitler was um uh, uh a a menace from even before the time that he he took over, simply because he thought that Hitler would gather uh, popular support in Germany to himself, and he understood uh, an anti-Semite when he saw one.
0: Uh, I noted that uh, Sir Lewis, during the Second World War, became friends with, of all people, uh, Sinjin Philby, Kim Philby's father. Did that friendship survive uh, Philby's imprisonment?
1: Um, that I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. You don't hear much about Philby uh, um, later on in Amis' correspondence. Um, he was, I think, he admired Philby in the way that he admired um, T. E. Lawrence, who was a friend at Oxford, and Aud Wingate, who was the cousin of his his university friend Ronald Wingate, and he was very um, uh, attached to all of them because they were in a sense they were romantic heroes they were men of action and Namier, who is a in 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 many respects a a, a a collection of paradoxes although he's ultimately himself a man of the of the of the library and, and of the study he admired romantic heroes he once claimed that he had been um, one of uh, pilsudski's um uh, marksmen in, in Poland in, the, in 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 the in the period before the First World War. He'd been prepared to take up arms uh, for Polish uh, nationalism then. Um, And the the relationship with Philby is is a strange one. He he lived quite close to, uh, quite nearby Philby's wife, and uh, was quite friendly with her. And he was also able to sometimes, I think, make distinctions um, between the ideas of his friends and the ideas of, uh, of other people which might be the same as his friends, but they weren't, they weren't his friends, if you follow what I'm saying. He, he could make excuses for friends of his who were anti-Semitic uh, in, in the 1930s. He could make excuses for friends of his who supported the Munich Agreement, which he absolutely loathed. And in the case of St. John Philby, he could make excuses for Philby's uh, uh, strong Arabist, sympathies um partly because he believed that um this was this was not altogether removed from his own strong Zionist sympathies and the, just the same with uh, with Lawrence and the two could coexist that you could have a a a, a Jewish state and you could have an Arab state uh, and the 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 um the coexistence of these two states, which of course uh, would have been difficult, he took for granted, and so he was not um, necessarily uh, opposed um, to, to some of Philby's ideas if he felt it could, that the Zionist movement could profit by them.
0: How do you explain Sir Lewis's post-war fame and eminence, the failure to obtain a Regis professorship at Cambridge or Oxford, apart?
1: Um, well, his Namier was 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 a very well known figure in the 1930s. His two books had established him as a as the preeminent authority uh, on 18th century England or at least that's, uh that's how he appeared in the public mind. Um, he then began uh, to write after the Second World War in a rather different. Uh, Framework. He wrote this great book, Diplomatic Prelude, um, analyzing um, the, the foreign policy of uh, European countries in the lead up uh, to uh, Munich and beyond. Um, and he therefore established himself as an authority on European, uh, contemporary European history. But he was also reviewing very widely, and that's, that sometimes uh, uh, underestimated the, the value of these reviews. In a way, the number of book reviews he did was a a dissipation of his talents. Um, Instead of writing big works of of European or British history, he wrote endless, uh, uh, longish book reviews and then gathered them together in collections. But they were themselves very impressive. Um, There's a wonderful stylistic um, strength in them, muscularity in them. And um, very often um, these wonderful aphorisms, which people endlessly quote. And they glittered. Uh, And that um, public impression of Naimia really grew up between about 45 uh, uh, and about 1953, 54. At that point, he's at the height of his his fame. He's a public intellectual. He's giving talks on the on the BBC third program uh, On the radio and um, he's reviewing in all the quality journals. He's publishing these collections of essays Everybody's awaiting the next great work Which never comes Um so he he does for a while have a position of preeminence in the public mind, but also among younger academics Um those um, people as, as, as different as Christopher Hill or Richard Cobb uh, um, read Naimi's work in the 1930s and were thrilled by it because it seemed to be he was actually talking about worlds that actually existed rather than, rather than pontificating about uh, uh, you know, traditional um, uh, uh, um, pictures of, of the past. Now, at that time, he 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 doesn't get both Regis chairs, Cambridge and Oxford. He doesn't also get the professorship in in international relations at at Oxford, which he might have done. Part of this is, I I think, by now the the anti-Semitism has faded, but it's still not gone away. And indeed, most extraordinarily one of the obituaries in, in, uh, 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 published of him in an English newspaper, in the Times, in fact, um, there is some reference to the way he, the hammer blows which he dealt were dealt with with a typical Jewish dexterity, which is quite uncalled for, and um, maybe indicates something, you know, beneath, uh, uh, lying beneath what was being said. But it is, I think, that he has made himself extremely unpopular. Um, in academic circles by the way that he follows up um, uh, any kind of uh, slight or insult or mistake that somebody makes. He's extremely combative. He's extremely um, aggressive, uh, and I think that made him unpopular. And of course, there is this uh, 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 popular view of him in academic circles that he's the greatest bore, uh, uh, um uh, ever ever to come out of poland uh, and um you know you couldn't possibly have him in a senior common room he'd dominate conversation and so on and there is evidence that he he might very well have done that so and um, he's he's he has a strong um, popular um uh presence as a historian in that decade after the after the end of the second world war. And young historians, until the emergence of a different kind of history in the 1950s, uh, saw him as clearly much better than, than anyone else. But he's personally, you uh, know, um, uh, I think might be the word. He's personally un- unpopular and nobody will have
0: him. How would you explain his second marriage to Lady Julia when in, in terms of personalities and interests, they're so so much different people
1: yes they were i mean i think he was um from all accounts when he met her um uh, during the war at a, a, at a tea party and um, rather intellectual tea party uh, one afternoon discussing um uh, uh christian jewish relations um she was struck by his his forthright, the forthright way in which he expressed his views. He was simply dumbstruck uh, by, by her. I think it was love at first sight in his path. He was completely um, uh, thrown over by her. And um, at that time he had a very, Nanya had a very um, um, interesting uh, sex life. He, he probably had two um, yeah, women with whom he was conducting um, long-term affairs without any serious uh, intent on his part. Um, but as soon as he saw her, he wanted to marry her. Now, um, so it must be a personal attraction, and indeed people who n- knew them both said that, you know, she was absolutely charming. Although uh, a s- secretary, one of his assistants, um, said to me when I mentioned Lady Namia, um, did, did, did she know Lady Namia? Oh, she said the Ice Queen. Um, she could be very, very cold and not a little snobbish, I think. Um, but most people found her of her own social class, found her charming. Now, she had a number of attractions to Namia. One was that she was from an aristocratic background, and he always um, prized. Um, the aristocracy, and she was also um, not just um, a Russian, but uh, a, a, a Russian Orthodox uh, writer and, indeed, a mystic, one might say, and Nehemiah had always thought of Orthodoxy, although he was not by any means religious himself, as representing the soul of Russia, the soul of Slavdom, um, and he felt, I suspect, that by marrying Julia, that he was somehow uniting himself to to his Slavic, well not his Slavic heritage, but the Slavic heritage that he so much prized. So she had many attractions uh, for him besides simply looks and personality.
0: We don't really know, do we, the sincerity or lack thereof in his conversion at that time of the marriage, actually before the marriage, uh, to Anglicanism, do we?
1: No, we don't. Um, people who knew him very well, uh, Blanche Dugdale, with whom he worked for many years in the Zionist movement, um, you know, couldn't believe it, really. Uh, Isaiah Berlin, who knew him very well, always um, maintained that there was no real religious belief in Namia. Um, Lucy Sutherland, uh, with whom he worked on the 18th century, said that he once mentioned to her, You her, know, Julia believes all that stuff, I don't. Um, on the other hand, John Brooke, who was closest to him in his last years, said that he thought he well, told somebody else and didn't say to me because he died before I could tell before I could talk to him. But told um, an informant of mine that he felt that Namia perhaps was turning to religion in his latter years, um, as a lot of um, elderly people do uh, when know, um, the death is approaching. But um, it's it's not very. It's not at all easy to say. And I think he went through um, the form of conversion and baptism into the Church of England, um, uh, really um, for form's sake, in order to marry Julia.
0: Why did uh, Sir Lewis have the falling out with Alan Taylor over the uh, Oxford Regis professorship in 1956-57?
1: Well I think simply because you know, Taylor expected Namier to support him um because he was he thought he was the best candidate, much indeed as Namier thought that he was the best candidate in nineteen forty seven. They both yes, they shared that um uh, view of their own abilities. Um and in the last resort, Namir clearly did not do that. Um we don't know much about um well we, we know a fair bit about the election. But we don't really know for certain what happened. Um, Namie was asked by Harold Macmillan, um, who was Prime Minister. Macmillan had been his publisher uh, since 1929. They were friendly. um, And Namie was obviously not a candidate himself, having long retired. And uh, Macmillan thought that he was obviously the best person to ask. So he asked who he would recommend and Namia recommended Lucy Sutherland um, now he didn't recommend Taylor at that point Lucy Sutherland would not take the Regis chair if it meant she gave up headship of her college Lady Margaret Hall so she wouldn't do that um, Namia then um, must have talked about the other candidates Taylor and, and uh, Trevor Roper and he must for some reason or other have um plumped for Trevor Roper we have some clues in in comments that he made about Taylor uh, as a potential successor at Manchester that Taylor was um was very good as a historian uh, but too prone to to show off and um, he must have fireworks uh, and that'll be his undoing was one of was one of Namely's. Uh, phrases, uh, and that he hadn't yet written anything, you know, so substantial and solid uh, uh, as, to, as, in his view, to to warrant being made uh, professor. So I suspect he might still have had that view of, of Taylor in, in, in 1957, um, whereas um, he took a rather um, more indulgent view of Trevor Roper. It's just possible that the, they had, they might have. There might have been a a cooling in their relationship uh, already um, on Namia's side, partly because Namia had supported the the British invasion of Suez. Uh, Taylor had been violently opposed to it. And Taylor had also uh, written some sharp reviews of some of Namia's works and some work published by Namia's uh, pupils, um, because he felt this was wasting Namir's talents, but I, I don't think Namir ever, ever, um, had a had a grudge against Taylor, and that he had grudges against so many other people, and indeed long after uh, the 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 falling out between them, he tried to, to to mend fences, build bridges, and so on. But Taylor wasn't having any. As
0: far as I'm aware of, Namir didn't have um, didn't take umbrage. I should say. At uh, Taylor's uh, famous uh, description of uh, Sir Lewis as "quote taking the mind out of history" unquote.
1: No, he didn't do that. Well, he may not have known that it was Taylor, uh, because it comes in a in a, a, a an unsigned uh, article in the TLS. So, and by that time, I think Naomi had fallen out with the TLS because they'd they'd um, had the temerity to edit his prose. So he, he wouldn't have been able to ask the editor who actually wrote this. He doesn't seem to have have, have worried over much about that, no. Uh, and indeed, he he didn't really worry about the criticisms leveled at him by Herbert Butterfield as criticisms. What worried him, I think, was that this would somehow reflect upon the History of Parliament project, in which he was fully engaged by that time and which was under severe pressure from the Treasury. And um, to produce or or be closed down, so he doesn't no he didn't take umbrage i think and he um I suspect that that he would have been slightly concerned himself. Um, John Brooks suggests this that that he had um uh, neglected uh, the the broader historical developments um, in in the pursuit of in the pursuit of detail. He was drawn to look at the look at the detail all the time, drawn almost into this morass of detail. but in his European history, he was able to rise above it in his British history. He found it very difficult.
0: Can you explain a little bit uh, sir lewis 's role in the post war history of parliament project
1: yes he was he had been involved with the first um, incarnation of, of the history of parliament in the 1930s it was the an idea put forward by uh, the liberal turned labour mp josiah wedgwood who was something of a local antiquarian and the idea from wedgwood's perspective was to write a, a history of parliament an official history of parliament which would educate the world in the virtues of the british parliamentary tradition and it was to be done by biographies because that was at that time um, in the way Um, Namu was writing history, other people were writing uh, political history, and it it fitted in with the tradition of the Dictionary of National Biography. Now, that project um, languished largely because of Wedgwood's difficult personality in the 1930s. There was still um, an amount of of some of the funding um, left, from Wedgwood's fundraising, and it was put in the hands of a trust, a parliamentary trust, during war. And after the war, after the Second World War, this trust tried to revive the history of parliament. But this time, um, it wasn't um, to be run by uh, an amateur like Wedgwood, it was to be run by, in terms of the the academic direction by the real experts in parliamentary history, and these were uh, Namier, Sir John Neal, and several others. Um, so Namier was brought into a small editorial board, which um, uh, governed the uh, academic direction of the history uh, from 1951 onwards. And very quickly, that editorial board resolved itself into uh, a. A conflict between Namia and Neil on different approaches to writing the history of Parliament. Um, Namia had never been a, a prosopographer in the way that the classical uh, historians of the 19th century were prosopographers, or, or in the way that Charles Beard had been a prosopographer. He he never um, sought to simply list certain characteristics of members in order to understand. Um, either their um, how their backgrounds affected their their views in a, as a group, or uh, how their in the case of Beard uh, and, and and American revolutionaries how their economic interests determined their uh, particular uh, political positions. Namely, a, because he wanted to find out everything about everything, did a, a different type of prosopography. Um, his prosopography was trying to find out everything about these people, even to the extent of psychoanalyzing them. Um, uh, and it didn't seem to be going anywhere in particular. Neil, on the other hand, had a very simple and straightforward view. He needed to find out how many MPs were Puritans, how many MPs were landowners, how many MPs were in trade. And then you could make some generalizations about the behavior of the House of Commons. Um, Neymar didn't want to do that. He wanted to look at all the He was a perfect Uh, I suppose, uh, empiricist. He wanted to look at all the information he could possibly look at, and then come to conclusions. Uh, And it, it in fact, was Namia's vision that the history eventually adopted of writing relatively full biographies, um, which didn't um, seek to answer a set of pre-prepared questions, which was Neil's view, but were expansive uh, and revealed their general questions when all, the, when all the material was at hand, which is, of course, a very difficult way to do it.
0: What, if anything, remains of the once vast influence on the historical profession of Sir Lewis?
1: Um, well, I, I suspect that the, um, what, I, what, what he is probably still associated with is multibiographical analysis. The idea that in order to understand an institution, or whether it be a representative assembly or a civil service uh, or a political class, you write biographies of each of the, or study the biographies of each of the individuals um, and then you put it all together uh, as a group. And that kind of multibiographical approach is still used. It's used by the history of parliament, but it's used more broadly. And I think that as far as, the dictionary definition of namirism is concerned i think is is a long lasting influence um, I suspect that um his attitude to public opinion and to political ideas uh, which um, uh, have often been um, uh, uh, caricatured i think uh, by historians of ideas is no longer um Widely accepted, but is nonetheless n- still influential. The notion that that um, uh, individuals don't act um, uh, in pursuit of a, a, a rational set of of, of, of principles, um, that they are affected by their personal interests, um, whether it be material uh, self-interest, the need to to assuage some kind of deep psychological problem that they they might have. Um, this this view of the world is still, uh, this view of politics, it's still present. It's not as as powerful as it would have been um, perhaps when Naaman was writing in the 1950s. Um, his interest in um, the psychology of the persons in the past, he was himself a Freudian. Um, he was psychoanalyzed from the 1920s right through to the late 1940s. He tried to psychoanalyze some of the individuals he, he wrote about, whether it be George III, Charles James Fox, or whoever. That seems to still be an element in um, contemporary historiography. But I suspect that, that Namier's real and lasting influence uh, lies in, I would suggest, lies in his writings rather than in his, his method, his approaches, uh, his arguments and th- those writings are still um accessible they're still um influential um you may disagree with them but they they have to be considered they have to be um confronted and um, he is still quoted extensively uh for um some of the more remarkable phrases in his in his book reviews and essays um the one that i saw most recently um People don't often think, um, people don't always think. They sometimes merely wobble with the brain, and sometimes the brain doesn't wobble. I've seen that quoted about five or six times in, in newspapers this year. So he is still uh, a, a, an influence in that way. Otherwise, he stands, I think, as an exemplar of a certain type of historiography, uh, which in the, in the days of, uh, that we're in now, of the writing of, of social history and cultural history it, it, is, is obviously less. Immediately influential on on um, research students or academic historians or whatever.
0: So you would agree with uh, Jonathan Clark that uh, Nehmeri was not an influence on, say, the Peterhouse school.
1: And um, I think not an influence directly, um, because I suspect the Peterhouse school looked consciously towards um, Butterfield and. And um, Butterfield's argument about the importance of narrative. Nonetheless, um, the, the key figure in the Peterhouse school was obviously Maurice Cowling. If one reads um, uh, some of Cowling, you can't uh, you can't but detect um, a, a, an influence of Namia in in the approach that perhaps politicians um, may take great decisions. Um, Simply because, for, for reasons of immediate political advantage. I mean, that's something that Namier would have been happy to argue, though he wouldn't necessarily have said that all politicians operate in exactly that way. So I think there is a there is a a, a generic influence from Namier. I think without Namier, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have got the the um, the, the Peterhouse school of, of of high political historians. But it's, they're not obviously following in Namier's footsteps because he didn't see himself. As a, a high political historian, he saw himself as a, a sociological historian of politics.
0: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
1: The is far from being um, uh, a, a timeless, um, uh, uh, well, rather, the is ideas, far from being uh, a timeless expression of a particular cynical. Uh, materialist, conservative view of politics, uh, are in fact a product of a particular set of experiences uh, and um, uh, and cultural influences in his adolescence and early manhood. So he is a creature, really, of the period 1895 uh, to 1920, not, uh, 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 not a, a representative of a of one particular uh, view of looking at the, looking at human society and looking at the past, which has always been there and always will be
0: well, with that comment, Professor, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to new books in history, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Hayton.
1: thank you very much indeed.